In a moment, Jacob's going to be speaking to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, So if you'd like to turn there with me, our reading today starts at verse 3. That's 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and my iPad is switched off at this point, (laughs) for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Contentment, satisfaction, they're elusive, aren't they? So in 2005, fresh off his third Super Bowl ring, New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady was asked on CBS's 60 Minutes what the experience of his success had taught him about himself. This is what he said in part. A lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted. There's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Even with all the applause and fame and wealth this world offers, repeatedly we see those who have attained the highest place still unsatisfied, still discontent. Brady might speak of success in sports and achievement, but the false teachers in Ephesus in the first century A.D. were sold on the idea that money would give them ultimate satisfaction. So we've been studying the letter of 1 Timothy for the past few months, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. And one of the reasons Paul writes this letter is to help Timothy deal with the false teachers within that church, those misrepresenting the truth about God. And one of the hallmarks of these teachers we find is greed, love for wealth. They're in the business of religion for the money. So in the passage Peter has just read for us, which is from 1 Timothy and 1 Timothy, both, just so you're not confused. Uh, Let's see three basic truths this morning. First, false doctrine produces bad fruit. False doctrine produces bad fruit. Second, true godliness is content with less. True godliness is content with less. 
And third, wealth is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous. So first, false doctrine produces bad fruit. So Paul has given Timothy instructions for the church. There in the last part of verse 2, he's commanded Timothy to pass on these instructions to others. He says, command and teach these things. And now, Paul returns back to what had captured his attention at the beginning of the letter. How to deal with the false teachers. He calls these false teachers those who, verse, one, verse 3, would teach a different doctrine and not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned that Timothy stand up against these teachers. We'll see more about that next week. He charges Timothy to teach and yet reminds him that his teaching won't be the only voice people hear in the church. As one scholar writes about this verse, Timothy is to stand out in obvious contrast to those who teach false doctrines. But as we've seen in this letter, and I think we've mentioned every single sermon, these false doctrines aren't only matters of intellectual debate, right? They're playing out in life. We see yet again what we believe always impacts the way we live. And that's why Paul continues and says that not only are these false teachers preaching contrary to the truth about Jesus, but also contrary to the teaching that accords with godliness with how they live. He knows that only the true doctrine about Jesus will make people truly godly, truly people who love and live for Christ. False teachers, on the other hand, well, they might say they live for Christ, but their lives tell a very different story. If you'll recall, we kind of defined godliness as living a life centered on God, most basically. But what are these teachers living their lives centered on? Verse 4, they're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. It's like their ego is being puffed up like a balloon and the helium is conceit. As one author puts it, these teachers are fueled by ignorance and arrogance. And just look at the devastation that combination produces in the church. Verse 4, the false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. The idea behind these, this sentence here is of sickness. So contrary to what Paul has just called the sound, a.k.a. healthy doctrine of Christ, these lying teachers are sick with desire to stir up strife. We often say here at Loudon Valley that we don't want to shy away from talking about deep doctrine. Contrary to what many of our churches in our culture would say, we don't fear that having deep conversations about God will divide us and that only love and, and just kind of smoothing over those rough edges with acceptance of whoever you are will unite us. Doctrine does unite the true church. And we see that here, don't we? True churches are united by true doctrine. It is false doctrine that sinfully divides. Because Paul goes on and he shows the fruit of this false teaching. He says it produces what? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. The false teachers thrive off this stuff. They feed on controversy. Discord is their nourishment. 
And unless it's dealt with, these five things will devour the church at Ephesus. Paul points out that these fruits are creating friction among people who are like what? They're people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. He calls these false teachers corrupt in their minds and lacking truth. And the idea behind that lacking of truth, that deprivation, is the idea of a, of a robber who comes in and steals away the truth. Makes us think of Satan and how we must never underestimate the role he plays in disrupting the unity of a church like ours through the depraved minds of false teachers, especially. We must be careful who we listen to. And there at the end of verse 5, look at what these false teachers believe to be true. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So there's an illusion in these depraved minds that religion and obedience to God is not in and of itself worth doing, but is merely a tool to better things. They believe that godliness is merely a vehicle that will get them to another more desirable destination. And for them, that destination is money, wealth, and prosperity. So we're not sure exactly what that looked like with these teachers. Perhaps they were charging for their teaching Maybe there's some other illicit way they were garnering profit. But this is their heartbeat. We know that. They want financial gain by means of godliness. I would be remiss if I didn't remind us all that this didn't just remain a problem in the first century. And that it continues today. That there are those who would call themselves Christian teachers, who would call themselves gospel preachers, who are out to fleece unsuspecting, vulnerable people and use their supposed godliness to accrue wealth for themselves. Watch out. Paul warns of such teachers. They pervert godliness, using it, abusing it, and losing it in the dust of their headlong pursuit of self. That's no godliness at all. Watch out for these teachers. And I think this is also a good opportunity to search our own hearts. So are there ways we can be tempted to see our faith in Christ, our godliness as we mature in him, as merely a means to another end? Are there ways we try to be holy so we can manipulate God and get what we want from him? Are there ways we struggle with unbelief? Because that's the root of those thoughts, isn't it? That we don't believe that God in and of himself is ultimate joy for us. That we think our lives of godliness just must be means, just stepping stones to something better than Jesus. Something like heaven. Perhaps that's for you. I mean, that's what it is. Perhaps God is worth following for you just so you don't go to hell. But friend, newsflash, you should know that heaven's only wonderful because God is there. And if you don't enjoy God, you're not going to enjoy heaven. So consider, do you treat God as a means to something else? Affirmation from your parents? Acceptance from your community? 
somehow ridding yourself of this guilt that you carry and want to work out on your own? Repent. Come clean. God is never a means to an end. He is the end. He is the ultimate goal of not only our lives, but everything that lives. And so we see that these false teachers were wreaking bad doctrine or bad fruit in the church. Second, true godliness is content with less. True godliness is content with less. So look there in verse 6. This is our theme for this whole service. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So do you see what Paul's doing here? So he's agreeing with the false teachers, isn't he? And they say, there's gain in godliness. And he's like, you are right. There is gain. It's great gain. But in stark contrast with you guys and your money lust, godliness is gainful for much better things. In a way, Paul's saying that these false teachers aren't dreaming big enough. They're thinking godliness is is useful so they can get rich quick in this lifetime. But in fact, godliness is useful for spiritual wealth that that will never fade away. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Dear church family, true godliness looks to the eternal reward, not to temporary fleeting riches of the world. True godliness is content. True godliness is satisfied with God. True godliness does not need riches on earth to be happy. John read this earlier for us in Philippians 4. Paul himself had learned this lesson. Do you remember that? I have learned, he told the Philippians, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For Paul, contentment meant trusting God in whatever situation he found himself. Resting in the strength of Christ alone. When he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he's not talking about becoming a millionaire. He's talking about, I can do all things. I can be poor and rich. I can be weak and strong. And specifically with regards to financial wealth, he says, I am content in Christ alone. Why? Because riches just fly away, don't they? They don't last. That's what Paul gets at in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You never see a hearse hauling a U-Haul, right? As the old illustration goes. John Stott tells of a preacher at a funeral of a very wealthy, deceased person being asked by curious onlookers, how much did she have left? And responding, she left everything. It didn't matter how full her bank account was. 
She'd left it all. And I know you guys hear this often because I hear it often. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to repeat it again. We live in one of the wealthiest counties in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. We of all people need to hear this warning. Riches don't last. They're fragile. They're fine and good to enjoy, but they're not capable of carrying the weight of our meaning and purpose and joy. Only Christ is strong enough to carry that weight. Church family, contentment shows the world that our greatest worth is in knowing Christ, like we sang earlier. When we're content with less, like Paul says there in verse 8, he talks about food and clothing. That word clothing also includes shelter. We show that we're ultimately satisfied in Christ, that our godliness, this centeredness on him alone, plus nothing else, gives us everything we need. How's that for a formula? Christ plus plus nothing equals everything. Everything we could ever hope for. That's not just gain. The false teachers are selling Ephesus short. This is great gain. This is eternal gain. This is gain that never flees away. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes this, as kind of a definition for us. Contentment freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So Christian, are you content? you only had clothing and shelter for your family and food to sustain you, would you be content if you had Christ? To put it another way, would you be content with all the great things in life, all Tom Brady has and more, if you didn't have Jesus? I used this quote a few months ago, but some of you weren't here and the others are going to have to listen to it again. John Piper says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? See, Paul is saying that if we have the bare necessities of life and Christ, that's enough. In a way, Paul's our first minimalist, isn't he? But do we believe that? Is God enough for you, Christian? I'm not asking you to get rid of all the material possessions in your life. Those are good gifts from God, but they're not God. As Christians, we have been set free from worshiping our stuff. We can use it well, knowing that if it was all taken away and we still had Christ, we would still have everything. We would still be content. I hope that some of you aren't sure if you're content. 
sometimes I wonder if I'm content with Christ. Maybe like me, you love your stuff. What are we to do? Well, rehearse the gospel, Christian. Ask the Holy Spirit to ignite in you a a passion and a greater zeal and love for Christ. Repent and turn again to him. But to get even more practical, I'd encourage you to take a tip from Paul and think about death. To not avoid that subject. Paul doesn't avoid it. He uses it as a teaching tool. In order to remind Timothy to be content, he reminds Timothy he's going to die. And the way he dies is going to be just like how he was born, with nothing except himself. It may sound morbid, but Christian, we serve a king who's triumphed over death. And that actually changes death and this meditation on the fleeting nature of our lives and the forever nature of eternity into a very helpful and fruitful tool for us to think upon. Death reorients how we treat our stuff and how we treat our king. True godliness is content with less because true godliness is already completely rich, satisfied in Christ alone. What more could we want? Final truth to see from this text. Wealth is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous. Look there in verse 9. Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul's never one to mince words, but this is one of his more severe instructions in this letter. He warns all those who would seek after wealth. And I think our desire and our pursuit of wealth can masquerade as different things, can it? Luxurious living, ultra-spending, miserly hoarding, maybe just an over-preoccupation with what's coming in and what's going out that captures all our thoughts. And remember, again, I feel like I'm caveating this all the time, but I think it's necessary for us. Money is a good gift from God. And it's not wrong to want stability or promotion or even a good retirement. That's not wrong. Paul's not saying money is always evil, but he's saying it's always dangerous. And Paul specifically warns us about the pursuit of it. Because money, money just lies to us. It gives us this false sense of security, and it just flies away. I knew people in, what was it, 2008, when there was an economic downturn who lost almost everything and lost all hope of life with it. It might be Paul here specifically thinking of those who are not already rich but just consumes their thoughts. They just crave it. They desire it. And to those people, he says, look out for that desire that's creeping into your soul, that path goes down into darkness. He's saying the pursuit of wealth can so easily pull your heart away from God. It kind of goes ahead of you and lays down fresh pavement on the road towards temptation. And he says, 
ultimately, if we don't guard ourselves, if we start loving money more than God, if we start loving all that money can give us more than what God has given us in his son, we will finally meet destruction. You see that there at the end of verse 9, right? He says, the desire to be rich plunges people into ruin and destruction. The idea of plunging is the idea of drowning. So as one author writes, a love for money and possessions will drown you eternally. So Christian, we aren't ascetics. We don't hate our possessions. We enjoy them as good gifts from God. Paul even taught us that at the beginning of chapter 4. Do you remember that? When we studied that and we were like, we have to enjoy what God gives us with thankfulness. But in no way do I want to neuter the power of Paul's warning here. He's super clear and we need to respond to him with super clarity. Pursuing wealth is an activity fraught with danger. Paul says in verse 10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And then he points to some of the false teachers who have indulged that love for wealth and have done what? Wandered away from the faith. This isn't just hypothetical for Paul and the church at Ephesus. This is something they can think about. This is some people they've known who have fallen away. And this isn't the only place in Scripture where we see these warnings, right? Throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, thinking even back to the people of Israel coming into riches in the land of Canaan, you must be warned about the deceitfulness of riches. You must take great care lest it draw you away from God. These false teachers may have thought they were using godliness as a means to get wealth, but they were actually using godliness as a means to get hell, weren't they? Their temporary wealth was merely a pit stop on the way to destruction. So Christian, what is your relationship with money? And to be honest, I shudder to preach this sermon because personally, I, I love money. Often, I see that in my own heart. I love what it can do for me. I love the things it can purchase for me. I love the security it can tell me. I hate the worry that comes when I don't have enough of it. So together, let's pretend we're all sitting on these chairs and looking up at the Apostle Paul as he teaches us as a congregation. Let's listen together to his warning. And you don't have to be wealthy or from a wealthy background or upbringing to understand this craving for money. You just need to know the craving. So do you. Here's a helpful litmus test for you. Do you ever give it away? So is your first impulse after the bills have been paid to spend your money on your own desires, to hoard it for spending later, or is it to look to possibly bless someone else with some of it? Stewardship, savings accounts, budgets, those are good and they honor God. But again, they're not God. Scripture commands us to be generous. We'll see that even next week at the end of 1 Timothy where Paul commands the rich at Ephesus to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that line. 
riches give you a sort of semblance, a, a mirage of living. But you miss out on true life. So dear brothers and sisters, has the gospel had its appropriate impact on your finances? What the gospel does is it pries off our hands, off of, off of our stuff, and it focuses us on our eternal reward. So an easy way for us to look at our lives and to spot if we have an ever-growing love for money is to consider whether that's actually happening, whether our hands are actually being pried off our stuff, and we're growing and becoming more and more willing to share with those around us, in our church, in our community, for those in need. So are you responding to the Spirit's conviction to be generous? We're all really good about being convicted. It's actually conviction that leads to transformation that we're not as good at, is it? David Platt says this, A Christian's increase in income should result not in an increased standard of living, but an increased standard of giving. And dear church, isn't that what Jesus has done for us? I mean, Jesus had all the eternal wealth of heaven, all the riches of the everlasting kingdom, and gave it up for a time to become like us, to become poor, to not have a place to lay his head. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He describes the gospel like this. That Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. All we brought to the table were filthy rags, but Jesus took those rags on himself and gave up his perfect righteousness for us, so that we might become forever rich rich in ways that the stock market will never affect, rich in ways that our homes will never impact, rich forever. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the good news we celebrate as followers of Christ. We know that in our sin and rebellion against God, we were his enemies, that we were the ones who had depraved minds and deprived hearts, but that in his magnificent grace, he stooped down to us when we were helpless. And he sent his only precious beloved son to take on that depravity, take on our deprivation, our poverty, our sin, our helplessness, our rebellion, our greed, our lust, our laziness, all our sin. And when he died, it wasn't just an excruciating painful execution that he, that he felt within his own flesh and bones. It was the eternal divine verdict of placing all our sins on him that crushed him. So if you'll repent and trust in what he has done, you'll be freed from the burden of your sin. And God's righteous wrath will no longer rest on you, but on his precious son, Turn to him. Jesus came to die even for your love of money. And church, dear church, look, peer with me into eternity. Let's commit to praying that our, our white-knuckled hands that cling so tightly to our stuff 
would slowly relax their grip. And we would treasure what truly lasts forever. That we'd be satisfied in Christ alone. That though riches come and riches go, we wouldn't set our hearts upon them. Because the fields of hope in which we sow are harvested in heaven. Let's sing that, but first let's pray. Lord, we do need your mercy in this area. We do need repentance and growth and grace in the way that we think about our possessions and our money. So, Lord, help us in this way. Make us godly. Make us truly generous people because we're so rich in you. Lord, contentment does seem elusive, but forgive us for looking for contentment in the wrong places. Give us a fresh vision of Jesus and the way that he has provided so richly for us. And help us to grow in godliness as we await his return. In Jesus' name, amen.